In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we thought the first thing to start off with is going all the way back to creation. And usually when we think about creation, we think about, is evolution true? Was it six days, or was it more than six days? But we're not going to really consider those things. We're just going to consider the main uh, doctrine that comes out from creation. And we're 100% convinced that once we understand that, that it actually has very important implications on our life. It's not a doctrine that sits on a shelf in a theological library, but it actually means a lot to what's going on in our life. So there are three options for creation. And you could find these at the top of your handout. Okay? Option one is that God created everything out of pre-existing matter. So there was stuff there. And God created everything out of that stuff. Option number two is God created everything out of his own essence, out of himself. And option three, God created everything, as said there, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. So ex nihilo is the, is the Latin word for out of nothing. And all Christians, I think all Christians, would hold creation ex nihilo as a fundamental belief. So of the three of these, um, can anyone pick out any issues with any of them? Any issues with any of the three? Because only one of them is right. Does anyone want to guess which one is right? Number three? Let's have a vote. Who reckons number one is correct? Number two? Number three? Okay, so three wins. Okay. Can anyone identify any issues with any of them? Mary, you are going to say something? Um, I got the wrong option. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. I have no idea what to say. It's all right. Any, any, any issues with any of the three, ever? Okay, so that begs the question, who put that matter there? Okay, and if it just happened to be there and we accepted it for whatever weird reason, you would then ask, okay, was God triggered to put a pre-existing matter that wasn't in order in order? Okay, that's one of the problems. What about any of the other ones? Yeah, so... Where did it come from? Yeah, the big question. How could you have pre-existing matter? Awesome. What about the second option? God creating us out or everything out of his own essence. What's the issue with that? Some people didn't vote for it, so there must be a reason why he didn't vote for that one. Number two. You voted for two. Can anyone have, identify any issue with God creating us out of his own essence? Yeah, we would share in the characteristics of God. We would be all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, which we're not. Okay? And that is really important for us, and we'll come to that in a second. So the only option that we're left with is God created us out of nothing. Okay? And once we get our heads around it, there are very, very important implications for that in our day-to-day lives. St. Athanasius said something very nice. In, in turn your handout, the first paragraph there. To say that God would not be able to make anything without pre-existing matter, quote, is to impute weakness to God. For if he is not himself, 
the cause of matter, but simply makes things pre-existing matter, then he is weak, not being able without matter to fashion any of the things that exist. Very clear, as, as we just said. Okay? Then we could ask, okay, where in the Bible does it say that everything was created out of nothing? There are two main verses that support this. One of this is from 2nd Maccabees. So Maccabees is one of the deuterocanonical books that you don't find in the New King James Bible, but you'll find it in the Orthodox canon of the Bible, and you could find it online or in the Orthodox Study Bible. Okay? Look at this. 2nd Maccabees 7.28 I beseech you, my child, to look at heaven and earth and see everything in them and know that God made them out of nothing. So also he made the race of man in this way. So that's an Old Testament reference to support that God made everything out of nothing. And St. Paul says in Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So these two verses support the doctrine of creation outside, out of nothing. Okay? And as we saw from a quote from St. Athanasius, this is a, a belief that the church has held, the Christians have held for a very, very long time. And it's important to remember that Genesis 1 is definitely not a scientific account. The aim of Genesis 1 is not to show that the earth was created in six days or six billion days. So we can't subject Genesis 1 to a scientific framework. If we do, then we end up in a lot of rabbit holes and we start using something that's not intended to be a scientific reverence to answer scientific problems and we end up in a whole big mess. But the aim of Genesis 1 is to show that God is the creator, the Holy Trini Trinity has created the world, that we were created in his image and likeness and that there was an order and a system to how that was done. So we have to remember that Genesis 1 is not really a scientific account doesn't intend to it intends to show us something a little bit deeper okay so we're all happy with being created out of nothing we're good with that so if we were created out of pre-existing matter that would beg the question i think i have to use this no i don't want to that would beg the question who put it there if we're created out of um if god created us out of his essence that would mean that we share in some of his characteristics we would be timeless we would be ever present or powerful and none of us are so the only option is out of nothing. So then we ask, okay, well, what does this mean then? And as we go through, you'll find that this has a lot of implications for us in our lives, as I've been saying. Three conclusions from this, and we're going to explore these three today. Since we were created out of nothing, it means that creation is an act of absolute freedom, number one. Number two, it's an act of absolute love. And number three, God as creator is absolutely other or different from the world. We'll talk about the first, first two. Okay. God being God, does he need anything? No. So does he get any, gain anything from creation? Has he got anything to gain from creation? Nothing? Okay. Someone, when we said that once, someone said no. He wants creation to worship him. He gains worship. Okay, we'll look at that in a second. We'll look at worship in a sec. But he has nothing to gain. Meaning that if he created us and he has nothing to gain, 
that this was a completely selfless act. 100%. He had nothing to gain. It's a completely selfless act. If it was a completely selfless act and he has nothing to gain or he doesn't need creation for himself, that means that it was a completely free act. He didn't have to do it. If it was a completely selfless and free act, it means it was a completely loving act. Okay? Selflessness, freedom, and love. These three characterize God creating everything out of nothing. So when someone asks, why did God create the world? There is only one possible answer. And that answer is, out of love. But is anyone convinced by that answer? Does that, does that satisfy the itch in your head? Put your hand up if it does. Does it satisfy the itch in your head that God created us out of love? One. Anyone else? Two. Three. Anyone else? Four. Okay. Sometimes it doesn't. And, I, um, and then we might ask, okay, let's look at parents. Parents in the, in the church today. Having kids. What are some of the motivations to have kids? Is it an economically good decision? No. Does it create more time in your life? No. So usually what's the motivating factor for kids? Love. Now, sometimes people may say, oh, especially if they're not there yet, they might be like, I didn't get that yet. But when you speak to a parent, they're like, why do you have kids? Out of love. And I feel that that's God's way of trying to get us to have a slight understanding of what he's going through in his head. So when we say, why did God create us? And we say, out of love. And you go, that doesn't make sense. What do you mean out of love? And you go, okay, one day you'll be a parent. And one day you will enter an act of creation out of love. And then you'll be able to say, ah, I get it. It's like when you tell parents, you see parents that go, yeah, I love my kids before I even had them. Does that make sense? Okay. Right. So it's like God's trying to say, let me try and make you understand. Okay. If we just look at the quote sheet under the title Freedom and Love, love is indeed the only quality which explains the act of creation out of nothing. So only love can create reasons for creation no reasons are found if you said um, God is all powerful all present all these things aren't motivations for creation all powerful all present make God a great architect but the only one of God's characteristics that makes that shows some motivation for creation is love okay and if you look at point number two God's motive in creation was to share his love it's this love that causes God important few words to go out of himself to be selfless and to create things other than himself and at the end we'll look at the implications for some of these to our day-to-day life so god's motive in creation was to share his love some people have even described this as an act of um, ecstatic love and free will And for God, love isn't an attribute. You don't say God is loving. But St. John says, God is love. It's not a choice. It's not like God could decide to be loving. No, God is love itself. And we have this beautiful quote from St. John Chrysostom. The creation is 
beautiful and harmonious and God has made it all just for your sake. He has made it beautiful, grand, varied and rich. Have you ever asked yourself, why did God create things in beauty? Why didn't he just create things to be functional? Not everything has to be beautiful. Like for example, if you were to buy a light to put in your house, you have two options. You could just buy a simple light that does the job, or you could buy a nice light that fits in the house. Okay, that matches, that adds a bit to the atmosphere of the house. Have you ever asked yourself why God created plants and flowers to look different and to smell different? Why he created mountains that look amazing? Did he, did he have to do that? Couldn't it have just been functional? Couldn't he have just created functional plants, functional flowers, functional mountains, things that don't look great? So there's only one motive for all the beauty in the world. And what's that? Love. Okay? Which means that when someone says, for example, God created us to worship, for example, maybe they've got the wrong idea of worship. Do you know um, in Tezbeha, the third horse, we say, bless the Lord, all you things, praise Him and exalt Him forever. Can you list some of those things that we say? Beasts? Huh? Plants? Grain, snow? Sorry? Whales and creatures that move in the water. What else? Mountains and hills. What else? Sorry? The rain and dew. Have you ever asked yourself how a whale can bless the Lord? How can rain bless the Lord? What does that mean? Did King David just write it to fill in the gaps? Remember, if God created everything out of love and everything that's beautiful has a purpose a loving purpose, then a beast or rain or a whale or a mountain praises the Lord when it does what a beast and a mountain and a whale are supposed to do. When a cow does what a cow is supposed to do, it's blessing the Lord. Why? Because you look at the cow and you go, wow, it fits into the ecosystem. I don't think anyone ever looks at a cow and goes, wow, that's a beautiful cow. But you say it fits into the, into the ecosystem. But when you, look at a, when you look at a mountain, you go, wow, that's beautiful. Or you look at a rainbow, or like what we had on Saturday, the weather was so hot, and then you got a cool change. And then when we left church at midnight, the weather was beautiful. Yeah, oh, beautiful day. All that, in all that, creation is blessing the Lord, which means that everyone is involved in this thing. It's called worship. So when someone says, oh, God created us to worship, no, worship is a reaction of the person when they realize what God has done. When a person realizes what God has done for them, their reaction is called worship. So when you do a matanya, when you do a prayer, when you come to the liturgy, all that worship, that's in response, that's in response to God. So out of those three conclusions, we've tackled the first two. God's created the world as a completely selfless, as a completely free, as a completely loving act. So why did God create the world? Out of love. When we fail to understand that, that's okay. God has um, designed something called parenting. And for a husband and wife to come together in a loving union to produce a child. And in this way, we begin to have some understanding of what it means for God to create out of love. Any questions on those before we move on to otherness? Are we okay with that? All right. This is a big one. 
So what does it mean, otherness of God? Since God didn't create us out of himself, it means that we're completely other to God. And that means that we're infinitely removed from him, not by place, but by nature. We're human, he's divine. And the gap between humans and God is infinite. Which means that when we come to describe God, we can't use the same approach that we use for objects. We can't say, oh, there's a, there's a bench, there's a table, there's an icon, there's a human, oh, there's God. You can't say that. When you describe a bench, you say, oh, it's this tall, it's this wide, it's made of this material, it has these properties. You can't subject God to that. That's why one of the, the incorrect things that we say is, if you go to someone, what's theology? They say what? Theology, the study of God. Words about God. As if God is something that you could study, that is an experiment or a physical phenomenon that you could look at. So how do you describe someone who is completely other to you? Well, on Saturday, when we had the Feast of Nativity, we prayed the Liturgy of St. Gregory, and that liturgy gave us a lot of clues as to how you attempt to describe God. So if you look at your quote sheet, sometimes to describe God, we use words to describe what He is not, because we can never understand who God is. So we just describe what He's not. For example, He's not visible, so He must be invisible. He's not finite, He must be infinite. You can't measure him, so he must be immeasurable. You can't comprehend him, so he must be incomprehensible. You can't change him, so he must be unchangeable. You can't describe him or express him in words, so he must be ineffable, which is that first word. Okay? Without beginning, everlasting, timeless. These are all words taken from the liturgy of St. Gregory. So when we say that God created the world out of nothing, and that we're other to God, that means that we cannot subject God to the same criteria that we use on anything in the world. And how many times do we do that? How many times do we try put God into our framework and understand Him from the criteria that we use on objects? But as we see in the Liturgy of St. Gregory, one way to describe God is by saying what He's not. And if you flip your page, I've just taken another section from the liturgy of St. Gregory while we're here okay to look at what that liturgy says about creation because what we're looking at for the people that came late is we're looking at how God created us out of nothing and about how there were three options for creation option number one God created us out of pre-existing matter option number two God created us out of his own essence option number three God created us out of nothing we said the problem with option number one is you could ask, well, who put that matter there? That would not make him God anymore. Okay? And if he needed matter, St. Athanasius would say it would make God weak. So that doesn't work. If God created us out of himself, that means that we share in his properties. He's infinite. We become infinite. He's timeless. We're timeless. So the only option left is God creates us out of nothing. And we said that because God doesn't need anything, he was only motivated by love because it was a selfless act. It was a free act. So the only reason that God created us is to share love with him. Let's look at the, that section from the Liturgy of St. Gregory. Okay? It says, Ineffable, which means too great to be expressed or described by words. 
is the power of your wisdom and no manner of speech can measure the depth of your love toward mankind. So here in the Liturgy of St. Gregory, we're speaking to Christ and we're saying that regardless of what we're about to say right now, we could actually never understand this love. And right now, all we're looking at is creation. We haven't looked at salvation yet. We're just looking at creation. You as lover of mankind have created me as man. You had no need of my servitude, but rather I had need of your lordship. What we we're just saying before, God doesn't need us, which means that the only reason he created us is a selfless, free um, act of love. Because of the multitude of your tender mercies, you have brought me into existence when I was not. You have raised heaven as a roof for me and established the earth for me to walk upon. And this is beautiful. For my sake, you have bound the sea. For my sake, you have manifested the nature of animals. You have subjected all things under my feet. You have not left me in need of any of the works of your honor. You are he who formed me and laid your hand upon me and inscribed in me the image of your authority. You have placed in me the gift of speech and opened for me paradise to enjoy and have given to me the learning of your knowledge. Isn't that nice? How beautiful is that? Okay. Sometimes we miss these because um, the liturgy is, is prayed in a tune. So it always helps to get Coptic Reader or the liturgy book and just have a read of the, of the liturgical text as one big block. And you'll find that it's beautiful. All this describes a lot of what we've been saying right now. Everything that you see in the world, all the beauty, was created for one thing, love for us. Okay? So what we've spoken about so far is how creation is an act of complete selflessness, complete freedom, complete love. And we spoke about how God is completely other to us, which means that let's not even try subject him to the same criteria that we use on objects. And before we get to the last thing, you know how I said before, people think theology is, the stu- is words about God, the study of God. And some people say, oh, look, I'm not a theologian, so I can't talk about this. Okay? Clearly, theology isn't that. From an orthodox understanding, theology is not the study of God. Because God can't be studied. From an orthodox understanding, theology is to confess that Jesus Christ is divine. Now, you could have a seven-year-old grandmother who's illiterate who could confess that Jesus Christ is divine. Which means that theology doesn't belong to a select few people who study, but it belongs to who? All of us. Everyone. One quote, which is very popular, by Evagrius from the 4th century. If you pray, you're a theologian. If you're a theologian, you pray. If you pray, you're a theologian. If you're a theologian, you pray. But take the first part. If you pray, you're a theologian. So the 75-year-old Teta who's illiterate, who loves God from all her heart, and confesses that Jesus Christ is divine, is a theologian. And the person who writes books, who articulates things about God, the only way he could actually, he or she could actually get there is if they pray. That's really important for us to remember. Let's not take the Western approach that looks at theology, another subject amongst the other ologies. Biology, physiology, etc. You can't put that on the same shelf. Alright? Okay. The last thing we're going to do. What we've looked at is the doctrine of creation outside of nothing. Out of nothing. Sorry. 
And then we could ask, okay, but what does this mean then? How does this change my life? What implications does it have to us? Okay? I've listed one, two, three, four, five. Maybe there are more. I've just listed five. Number one. It means that God loves us for who we are and not what we do for Him. Very important. God loves us for who we are and not what we do for Him. Sometimes when we're young, this gets twisted. Does anyone remember when they're a little kid and they do something wrong and someone says, Baba Yasuha is Okay? Well, we know that's not true, right? What we could say, God gets upset for us. If God can get upset, let's not even go there. But for us as opposed to from us. Sometimes we grow up thinking, if I am good, then God will give me his love. But that makes God dependable. That makes God like me and you. If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. But we know God's not like that. So God loves us for who we are. And what are we? We're his creation. Period. We're his creation. Period. And not what we do for him. The thing is, when we do the right thing, we're able to enter more into what God has prepared for us. For example, God is pure. If I'm pure, then I'm able to be closer to God. God is truth. If I'm honest, I'm able to be closer to God, etc. So the first thing is God loves us for who we are and not what we do for Him. And I saw this really interesting video last week where a priest was answering the question, what are we going to do in heaven? And he says, wrong question. Because what's the answer that we're usually given when you say, what are you going to do in heaven? Praise, tazbaha. And someone goes, I don't like tazbaha. Does that mean I'm not going to like heaven? So what he was saying was, stop looking at everything through a functional lens. What's my function in heaven? He goes, wrong question. Rather than asking, what are you going to do in heaven? Ask, who am I going to be in heaven? As opposed to, what am I going to do in heaven? Don't reduce it to a function. Who am I going to be in heaven? Okay. So God loves us for who we are and not what we do for Him. That, I think, is really important, at least to me personally. Because it's always nice to, to know that regardless of what I do, I am still loved by God. Okay? Number two. Because God is love, and, all, and, and, he has, and everything is created out of love, we are also called to love... And this involves treating all creation as an object of love the same way God has. In other words, since God has created everything out of love, we too are called to look at everything the same way that God looks at it. Every person is unique, sacred, and equally important. This also means that technically we, we're greenies. Okay? Because God created the world. And what's our job as humans? To preserve this world. That's why he says we're salt. With the soul of the earth. Preservative. Okay? Every person is unique, sacred, and equally important. And you actually see this when you come to church. When we come to church, we don't stand or have communion based on our social position, our income, our qualifications, none of that. We all stand equal before God, lack of a better word, naked before God, or equally loved. And if you look at the um, early church, before they used to have communion, they used to do something. Do you know what they used to do? Before communion? Any guesses? Sorry? No, no, not, not confess? Dinner. 
They used to eat a meal before they had communion. So when St. Paul in Corinthians is telling people off for coming to church unprepared, they were treating this dinner meal, which is called an agape meal, as we know it, love feast, in the wrong way. They were sitting in their little cliques. Okay? Some of them were coming with different food. Some of them were coming unprepared. And St. Paul was like, you've lost the point of what this is. If you remember um, in the Gospels, a lot of times they told Christ or they, they, um, they, they accused Christ of eating with the wrong people. Who are these people? Sinners and tax collectors. Okay? Now, when you look at it, you ask yourself, why is it a big deal to eat with a sinner or a tax collector? If we go to a restaurant, we're just going to be rubbing shoulders with a random next to us. Why is that a big deal? Well, when you share a same table with someone, the same table, especially before restaurants, etc., it's a very intimate act. You don't share a table with anyone. You share a table with someone who you know. Meaning that when Christ is sharing a table with sinners and tax collectors, He's trying to send home a message. He's trying to say, love these people as well. And then we see that at the Last Supper, what did He do? He shared a table with His disciples, and that's where He gave them the body and the blood. And then we go to the early church, and they share a table of food before they share the body and the blood of Christ. And then you go to the monasteries in Egypt. By the 4th century, they flipped it. You have communion, then you eat. Different topic. Okay? And what do you see in the monasteries in Egypt? You have the church and you have a little door. And where does that door lead? To the dining table. Okay? Why is that? Because the agape table, the dinner table, the lunch table, the, real, the, like, the meal table is connected to this table. And all this is an opportunity to enact this. To see every person as unique, as sacred, as equally important. Where in the world today you may be separated based on how many likes you have on your page, what qualifications you have, how much money you have, what car you drive. You know, at the end of the day, like when you meet someone, a lot of times people, what do they do? They go home and they look them up on Facebook. You get a general understanding of what their life is like. Okay? Immediately that person is put on, a, on some sort of scale where they, where they fit into life. Okay? What degree it says they have, what car, what watch, all, all that stuff. When you come to church, you're free from all of that. We're seen as unique, sacred, and equally important people for just one reason, and that reason is who we are God's people. Can you imagine if we actually treated everyone the same way that God calls us to treat them, what the church, community, and the world would look like? Different place. Third point. Therefore, to live is to love since this is how God exists. There's a difference between existing and living. To live is to love since this is how God exists. So all of this is coming from just reflecting on the fact that God created us out of nothing. When we started, it's just, oh, okay, this is a theological, dogmatic point. But when you look at it, no, this has real implications for what I'm going to do when I go home and what I'm going to do when I wake up tomorrow morning, what I'm going to do when I see my friends at work and everyone at church. It all comes together. To live is to love since this is how God exists. Number four. As I said, we are called to view all creation as sacred, which means that we are a bit greenies. Okay? We're not going to hug trees and things. 
but we're, we're greeners, in a way. We're called to view all creation as sacred. And finally, this one's an important one, creation is a, and we'll just explain this word, canonic act. We are also called to empty ourselves. There's a word which is kenosis. It's a Greek word. Sounds like ketosis, but it's not ketosis. It's kenosis. Kenosis means to empty, self-emptying. It's a word that St. Paul uses in Philippians, where he says that Christ emptied himself, a word that we also use in the liturgy of St. Gregory. Creation is an act of self-emptying, kenosis, and which means that we are called to also self-empty. Now, there are two things that God has set up in the world, amongst others, but I'll just focus on two, for us to practice self-emptying. Any guesses what these two things are? Fasting is one of them, but I'm thinking something a bit harder. Sorry? Humility? Humbleness? Think of something practical, something that a lot of humans do. Not confession. Something, don't think church. Think something that every, most people do regardless if they're Christian or not. Marriage, that's one. Yeah, which involves service, good. Marriage is one, and give me another one. It's something, we, it's a subset, it can be a subset of marriage. Children, okay? Let's unpack this very quickly and then we'll finish off there. Since we said that to live is to love, okay? Okay? To live is to love since this is how God exists. Since creation is an act of self-emptying, we're also called to self-empty. God has set up a couple of things to sort of make this a daily reality. Okay? Today, marriage is about what? Who's marriage about today? Me. Okay, have you heard of polyamorous relationships? Not polyamorous is open relationships where a husband and wife get together and they go, look, this whole monogamous thing just doesn't work for me. So what we'll do is we'll stay married. You're cool. Okay. But I need to see other people because this is what I need. So they have an agreement. It's on the radio over time. I think you probably have, maybe even have colleagues at work that do this. I will have my life out here, see whoever I want to see. And you see whoever you want to see, no problems. And they may even all meet together and have lunch at Christmas. No issues. So marriage is now about me, 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 me. Okay, so the ego is getting bigger. But from the beginning, marriage isn't about me. Who's it about? The person in front of me. That's why when you read the, the um, Pauline epistle in the, um, in the wedding ceremony, it says, husbands love your wives the same way Christ loved the church. Dot, 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 dot. Wives submit to your husbands the same way. And I'll, I'll tell you why I'm smiling. Um, the same way the church submits to Christ. And everyone laughs. Oh, wives submit to your husbands. Ha, 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 ha. Okay. Well, does anyone read a few verses before that? What does it say? Submit to one another. Everyone forgets that part. Okay? It says submit to one another. All right? I'm not going to talk about what wives submit to your husbands means because people have misinterpreted it to make the church sound um, like we're all about men and uh, women have to just say yes, boss. And when it comes to big decisions, the guy has to decide. It's not about any of that. That's a different conversation. But what's Christ trying to say there? What's St. Paul trying to say there? Sorry. Husbands love your wives the same way Christ loved the church. What did God do for the church? Died for her. So what's a husband supposed to do? Die for his wife. Easy. Wives submit to your husbands. In other words, when you see that your husband is dying for you, you also die for him. 
It doesn't mean when you're stuck on a financial decision, leave it up to him. Or we don't know which suburb to move in, leave it up to him. That's not what that's about at all. Okay? So you have this image between Christ and the church. The bride, the bridegroom and the bride. Where husbands are told to die for their wives the same way that Christ died for the church. Now this is very different to the understanding of marriage today where marriage is about me and my needs are getting fulfilled. Of course, all humans have base needs, but I think you know what I mean. If you go to the beginning in Genesis, when Adam um, wakes up and he sees Eve, what does he say? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, etc., etc., etc. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Think about that. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. In most societies 50 years ago, who leaves who? Does the man leave or does the wife leave? The wife. Even until today in Western countries, the wife takes the surname of the husband. Now think about a Middle Eastern country thousands of years ago. Who leaves? The wife. So what does it mean a man shall leave his father and mother? Sorry? Okay, could mean discomfort. Awesome. Could be one thing. Definitely. What else? One way we could interpret that is a man shall leave his father and mother and be cleaved to his wife. Jesus Christ shall leave heaven, his father, and cleave to his wife, his wife also known as the church. So what's that talking about? It's a prophecy. Which means from the beginning we have linked Christ with the husband and the church with the wife. And Christ dies for the church, the husband dies for his wife. Creation is a canonic act, meaning that God self-emptied to create, which means we are also called to self-empty. And one way to do that is marriage. So if you want to become a saint, what do you do? Get married. Okay? I'm going to say this, but... My wife is not going to interpret this the wrong way because we've spoken about this before. Marriage is then a form of martyrdom or I was going to say suicide. Martyrdom, okay. Why? Because yes, I am dying to myself. And marriage then is a journey where my ego has to go down, 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 down. And the person in front of me has to go up, 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 up. And if the person in front of you does the same, then you have a beautiful house. Right? Can you imagine a husband says, my goal in life is to die for you, and the wife says, my goal in life is to die for you? What could go wrong there? It's fine. So that's where you get the crowns from. Why are you crowned? Crowns of martyrdom. On your wedding day, they're like, you're about to enter the battlefield. Enjoy your honeymoon. Like, you're about to enter the battlefield. Okay? And in this way, marriage teaches you how to become loving, how to serve, how to be humble, how to forgive. It's really easy to be nice with everyone here because if you're not nice with everyone here, no one's going to talk to you, right? It's hard to be nice with your family, okay? When you're a little kid or when you're a teenager, especially boys, as soon as they turn 18, 19, you don't see parents, you just come home, you sleep, you get up, you go, you go out, you leave the dishes, who cares? You know, like your parents are going to be there tomorrow anyway. No one's going to say anything. But you don't realize, hold on, actually the hardest people to love practically is your family because they're going to be there anyway 
So what does God do? He goes, all right, I'll put you in a situation. We're going to wake up and mix with the same person every single day. And you have to learn to love them, to serve them, to be humble and to forgive. So that's an example of self-emptying. And the second example is parenting, especially a mother. A mother in the, for the mothers in the room, in the church, a mother in the first few months is doing what? Sleeping when the kid sleeps, if she sleeps, waking up when the kid wakes up, breastfeeding, changing diapers, all that stuff. It's like, it's a big deal, right? And sometimes uh, some mums will say, I'm not able to pray because I'm too busy. It's okay. Because what the mum is doing right there is something very holy. What's she doing? She's self-emptying for the sake of the kid in front of her. And if we look at everything in life in this way, then you cannot say that there's such thing as a social life, a family life, a work life, a church life, and the worst one of all, a spiritual life. Get rid of all of that stuff. How many lives do we have? Just one life, okay? And we call that a life in Christ. So when you use the word spiritual life, we say we have a life in Christ. Meaning that when a mum wakes up in the middle of the night and her baby's crying and she goes to feed the baby, she is participating in her life, in the life in Christ, which means what she's doing right there is very holy, which means there's no guilt there. You're actually doing something holy. You can't say, oh, I don't have time to pray. No, what you're doing there is holy. Don't, say, don't, don't associate any, any laziness with it. That's a very holy thing that you're doing. The same in a marriage. When a husband and wife empty themselves for the other, they are participating in the canonic act of God in creation and salvation, which Marco will talk about in a couple of weeks. And in this way, everything becomes holy. And I don't know about you, but in my head, that makes life a lot simpler. There's no complications anymore. What are we called to do? Self-empty, live canonically. Okay? So let's summarize before we wrap it up. Okay, so we said three options for creation. Creation out of pre-existing matter, that won't work because we put that stuff there. And if that stuff was there and we accepted that, then you could say our God was triggered by things. Option number two, he created us out of his essence. That won't work. That would mean I'm timeless, I'm infinite, I'm all-powerful, I'm all-knowing, which we're not. It doesn't work. Our only option is God created us out of nothing. Meaning that since God doesn't need anything, it was a completely selfless act, which means he didn't have to do it. So it was a completely free act, which means it was a completely loving act. And which means everything that we see here is done out of love, which means that we need to react in love to all of God's creation. And then we looked at about how since we're created out of nothing, we're other to God. The distance between humans and God is infinite by nature, but not by place. Meaning that I can't put our criteria onto God. So how do I describe God? Sometimes we use words that describe what He's not. He is immeasurable because He's not measurable. He's incomprehensible because you can't comprehend Him. He's unchangeable because you can't change Him. And then we get to the implications. Very quickly, God loves us for who we are and not what we do for Him. Because God is love and everything is created out of love, we are called to love and this involves treating all creation in the same way that God has, seeing every person as unique, sacred and equally important regardless of what they have done or what they're doing. Okay? Three, to live is to love since this is how God exists. Four, we are called to view all creation as sacred. And the last one which we spoke about at length, 
creation is an act of self-emptying, a canonic act, we are also called to empty ourselves. And we use two examples, only two examples. One of them is marriage, and the other one is um, having children. And you might say, well, not everyone's going to get married, of course. I'm just using two examples. We're called to be self-emptying in every minute of our life to every person that we see to carry our cross and to follow Christ. But I just use the marriage and the, uh, the child-rearing example as two, but of course, not everyone wants to get married, not everyone gets married. Some people either stay single or they become um, monks or nuns or they dedicate themselves to a certain calling or ministry, but that was just an example. Alrighty? Any questions on that? So next week, Marco would go through with us. So we start at the beginning, creation. So back to basics is about five or six. The first one is creation out of nothing and what this means. Okay, we looked at that. The second one is what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? What practical implications does it have in our lives? The third one is how do we understand salvation? Did God die on the cross to pay a price? If so, to pay the price to who? Is there any other way you could talk about salvation? Number four, since all of, we've covered all this, why do we have a church? Why do we need to come? Do I need to come? Can I just be Christian at home? And number five, about the table, the Eucharist. Why is, is that very important? That's five, and that will carry us through to Lent. So for those who came at the end, what we were saying is um, the way, what we're trying to do on Tuesdays, is like an, it's something for adults of all ages, as we have in, in church. And for lack of a better word, it's not this, but just the easiest way to explain it, it's like adult Sunday school. All of us as adults need to learn. All of us, regardless of who we are, in every stage of our life. You don't graduate from knowing or from um, experiencing the Orthodox Church. You don't, you don't graduate when you finish year 12 or when you finish discipleship. So this is something for adults. We've chosen the first series, Back to Basics. We're still going to find our feet, seeing what type of topics to go for, what length, what approach. So be patient with us as we do all those. And once we finish the Back to Basics, we'll have some surveys sent out. We'll get your opinions about where to go, length, approach. Do you want handouts? Do you want PowerPoints? What different topics that you want? We've brainstormed some topics with the focus group, but... If you have um, any topic suggestions that you want to give tonight, have a chat to Mary, or Miriam, or Marco, or Abba, who I can't see. Anyone else? Okay. Start with Marco, Miriam, or Mary, if you have any, um, any urgent suggestions. Otherwise, if you'd like to keep these papers, please keep them. If, you're not, if you don't want to keep them, so we just don't cause rubbish at church, just keep them um, at the back there where the... Um, the church bulletin is usually kept. Okay. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.